Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen here, delivering the world of food directly to your radio. Because the next best thing to eating food is talking about it. Oh yes. You can share your great taste just by tuning in. And because I believe that living the best life is all about feeding your soul, every weekend this show is more than just about gastronomy. I cover food, wine, and mixology, tech, trends, travel, health, and more. And I do hope that your dishes come alive with flavor, that you gain decadent insight, and that you enjoy the delicious conversation. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and you can find my daily dish on social at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you happen to have missed a show, podcasts are posted under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen on iTunes. So let's get this party started, shall we? I like to kick off this show with a tutorial, with a method or chef's secrets to make you the best cook you know. And whether you love to cook or love to eat, there are so many uses for frozen puff pastry. You see, when the holiday season comes around, just about now, you start to get super busy. I know I do. And I'm always looking for a quick go-to. And when you need pastry dough in a hurry, frozen puff pastry is the king of chef-loved convenience foods. It is incredibly versatile, and you can use it to make a a huge array of hors d'oeuvres and main courses and sweets. And puff pastry, fully prepared in a box, is actually one of those go-to ingredients that is really beautifully well-made and has tremendous staying power. So while it's many, many years ago now that I graduated culinary school, I had my attempt at making puff pastry from scratch once, 128 layers or so of butter and flour combined over and over. And let me tell you, the frozen stuff is pretty darn good. So puff pastry, the traditional French pastry made with layers of butter and dough, is used to make a variety of the French pastries rather that we love, like croissants and napoleons. But there are simpler sweet and savory applications that will make baking a crispy, buttery dream in just minutes so easy. Now, there's lots of ways to use puff pastry in your kitchen, right? You can use it in place of pastry or pie dough when you're making a pot pie. Maybe you have a drawer full of veggies and you're making a quiche this weekend. Maybe it's vol-au-vent. Maybe you're making Wellington. Well, you can create bakery quality treats like pommiers too, that French puff pastry cookie that looks like a butterfly or elephant ears. How about those homemade fancy cheese straws that will make everyone think you're a master baker? Now, if conquering the art of using puff pastry tickles your fancy, I have some tricks for getting the best results from this very versatile dough. 
you always want to take puff pastry out of the freezer about 30 minutes before you want to use it. Or if you're planning in advance, thaw it overnight in the box in the refrigerator, but don't remove it from its paper wrapper until you're ready to use it. Now, most pre-made puff pastry comes in sheets that are folded like a three-fold letter. I happen to love the traditional French version that comes in a larger box, so you do need space for it. If Maybe you have a garage fridge that it will fit into. That's where I house mine. Uh, but I will say uh, it's easier to work with when it comes in the full sheet, but the three-fold letter sheets work just fine. You don't want to try to unfold the sheet straight from the freezer. The pastry will no doubt crack. And if the dough cracks, by the way, there is a solution. You just dampen your fingers with water and you gently press the puff pastry back together. And then you can roll it out a little bit to seal the fix. But the pastry needs a little bit of time If it's straight from the freezer, it will not work. It needs to be reasonably thawed to unfold that three-fold letter style. Now, to resist sticking, you always dust your work surface with flour. And I like to keep a dry pastry brush nearby so that I can brush off any excess flour from the dough. And then once you've rolled it or cut the dough into the desired shape... If the puff pastry starts to soften before you're finished, uh, then I recommend that you put it back in the refrigerator for a few minutes before it goes into the oven. You see, puff pastry is not only easier to work with when it's cold, but it bakes up better from cold. You will get a much more beautiful, intense rise from puff pastry that goes directly from the refrigerator to the oven. So, Call it a chicken pot pie, for instance. You've made the filling, you put it into ramekins, easily made in advance, right? Well, as long as you're using thawed puff pastry, you can go ahead and top those ramekins with the puff pastry dough and place the pot pies back in the fridge until you are ready to bake and serve. Now, in the case of a tart or anything where you don't want the puff pastry to puff in the middle, let's say, then you want to prick the dough all over with a fork, just like you would a pie crust, really. And you always want to leave a border so that the sides puff and essentially create a tart shell for you. Now, whether it be sweet or savory, you can consider using puff pastry for just about everything that is called for with pie dough. I make a tomato strudel at the height of the summer uh, season, uh, the, you know, the highlight of tomato season with goat cheese and niswa olives. During the holiday season, I make mini caramelized onion tarts with bacon and gorgonzola. It's a really easy hors d'oeuvre. You put the puff pastry into a mini muffin pan. You cut pieces that fit into your pan and just press them in. Then I poke the bottom so that it doesn't puff, leaving the sides. And I fill them with a teaspoon of caramelized onions, crispy bacon, and crumbled gorgonzola on top. So good. Homemade sweet cherry strudels, oh yes, can easily resemble empanadas. If you take canned pitted cherries, you mix them with a little bit of sugar, vanilla paste, you spoon them onto squares of puff pastry, and then you fold one edge to the opposite side to create a triangle, seal the edges and bake, and you have this beautiful, what I call a cherry uh, empanada or a cherry pot pie. Now, 
You could do it with blueberries. Uh, you could do a pear nestled into puff pastry. I have a secret for that coming up. Uh, drizzle of sea salt caramel, dollop of whipped cream. That is a quick indulgent dessert. And whether it's that absolutely decadent sweet or an easy fancy appetizer, puff pastry really cannot be beat. So store a box in the freezer for you never know when this holiday season and find delicious inspiration for recipes using puff pastry at chefjamie.com. I'll give you a little hint. I make a pistachio blue cheese and fig puff pastry twist that is so easy and delicious and they're gorgeous standing up out of a glass as a centerpiece on the table. Then I switch it up and make it sweet by using that same puff pastry twist with, uh, let's see, sugar, almonds, uh, and you could mix in a little cinnamon or a baking spice if you like. And then back to that pear for just a moment. There is almost nothing better than a puff pastry truffle pear. And when I say truffle, I mean round and chocolatey. You roll out the puff pastry and you cut pears in half and peel them uh, like you would for a poached pear. And you suspend a truffle when you turn the pear half over onto the puff pastry. Then you brush the puff pastry with an egg wash, sprinkle it with sugar and bake. About 15 minutes later, Oh, you are a serious culinary hero. And my recipe for puff pastry truffle pears is posted at chefjamie.com. So grab it and call it your own. And I hope you love it. Now, don't touch your dial because there's lots more fabulous food coming up in your radio. Lindsay Jean Hard of Food 52 fame just released her first cookbook entitled Cooking with Scraps. And so you're going to take all those seeds and the stems and the tops and the rinds and you are going to make good use of them because waste not, want not. We're cooking with scraps next. And before the end of the hour, George Stone of National Geographic is stopping by for the love of travel to share journeys of a lifetime and his favorite dishes from around the world. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. Lightning kitchen conversation in your radio every weekend. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Do you want to cook with purpose? Well, then waste not, want not. Lindsay Jean Hard, who writes the Cooking with Scraps column for Food 52, is sharing her most delicious and surprising recipes in a new cookbook release that is fabulous. Her focus, the all too often discarded parts of food that she transforms into culinary treasure. In Cooking with Scraps, you'll learn how to put those seeds and stems, tops and rinds to good use. And Lindsay Jean is here to dish. So think chicken bones for stock and stale bread for strata. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Hi, Lindsay Jean. Welcome. Hi, 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Okay, take us back. Share your story, please. A little bit about who you are um, and why you cook with what many people think is trash. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's been an interesting journey to get here. Um, I really started to be more thoughtful about what I was eating when I was living in Japan for a Mm. couple of years with my husband. And we joined a CSA for the first time. So that meant that every week we were picking up a box of vegetables that had been grown by local farmers. And we would pick that up at our local um, grocery store. And almost every week I had to walk in the grocery store with one of those items because I'd never seen it before. So I had to ask them what it was. Mm. And then I had to go home and look it up and figure out how to use it. Oh, how fabulous. I love that. (laughs) It was fun. And, you know, knowing that these local farmers had grown what I was eating made me that much more um, feeling like I needed to be responsible um, about what I was eating and eat all of it and put it to good use. Um, And then from there, when we came back from Japan, I helped a couple of friends with a startup called Real Time Farms. And that was a website to help people find food that they felt good about eating. So we would help people find their local farmers markets and learn about uh, their local farmers and their growing practices. And so it was really just this path to connecting food and writing and sustainability And um, we had a really incredible group of advisors for that startup, two of whom were Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs, the co-founders of Food 52. Yeah, good good to be in a a good place at a good time. Yes, Yes. absolutely. And so they eventually acquired uh, Real-Time Farms, and a couple of us went on to work for Food 52. Um, And I worked there for six years, and wore a variety of hats like community manager and editor, but also writer. And one of my favorite columns was cooking with scraps. And I would share recipes from the community that were making smart use of underutilized produce parts and other odds and ends. And I really learned a lot from the community during that time. And I wanted to share that with everyone. So that's really where this cookbook was born. I think it's a beautiful story. And I think it proves tremendous consciousness in today's world that I think so many of us aspire to have and where it starts at the grassroots level where you can be conscious about, you know, the bones from a rotisserie chicken doing more rather than just throwing them away. And there is a an incredible level of responsibility in it where you're not only being uh, smarter, more frugal, more responsible, but you're doing better for the planet, for the landfills, for the environment, for your community. It feels good to me, Lindsay Jean, and I love that. Oh, absolutely. It's it's good for the planet and it's good for your pocketbook. It yes. makes sense. And it's good for your soul. Yeah. That, that's really at the end of the day. Uh, your culinary ingenuity goes beyond just broccoli stems. So inspire us with a few general thoughts, please, on what cooking with scraps is? Well, it's really, it's like I said, it's making use of these underutilized produce parts. I think it's sometimes we do this without thinking that a recipe says to cut and discard a kale stem. Mm. And so, you know, it's not really, it's not our fault. We're just following the recipe, but this has become so ingrained that we need to just retrain ourselves about yes. all of these crazy bits that are actually 
edible mm-hmm. and tastes great and just get back to the point of realizing that they're ingredients like everything else is. Right. Okay. So inspire us. Let's get frugal and fabulous and cook. I'm going straight to the recipes. It's apple, okay. it's apple season. You use the cores and the peels to make a pancake syrup for Danish pancakes that I can't wait to try. Yes, that's one of my favorites. I A lot of my love of cooking is from my grandparents. Mm. Um, they would cook together in the kitchen. And so I just have all of these warm, fuzzy memories from that. And Danish pancakes um, and Abelskivers, which are yes. spherical pancakes that you'll find in the book too, those are two of the things that they would always make me for breakfast growing up. Mm. So I wanted to find a way to incorporate those into the books. But apple peels and apple cores still have all of that apple flavor. So you can use that to make syrup for then drizzling over the pancakes, or you can use those to make batches of like um, apple-flavored tea by just simmering them in water with brown sugar and some spices. How nice. And then you take the peel and you make chips. So yes. what a great, crunchy, nutritious lovely snack, waste not, want not. Yes. Let's talk aquafaba next, please. This is a a reasonably new innovation of good use, I guess I would call it. Um, I was delighted to see you're making brownies with aquafaba. I don't think many people are thinking this way. And this is the train of thought we want to get to. So define aquafaba, if you would, and then let's put it to good use. So aquafaba comes from the liquid from beans. So you can get it from the can of beans that you're Mm -hmm. draining. It also is possible to use if you're cooking beans yourself. I think it's more consistently easy to work with if you're getting it from a can of beans. But it whips up and then it behaves just like egg whites in a recipe. So you can make these deliciously fudgy brownies. Um, You can also make them easily vegan, too, by using like a butter substitute instead of butter. Mm. But um, it gives like a great texture. And then, yeah, you're using something that normally goes down the drain. Uh, Quickly and easily, by the way. I think the $64 million question here is, do your fudgy brownies taste like garbanzo beans? No, they don't. (laughs) Because that that would be the first question, I think, for any great cook. I mean, we rinse, uh, we drain and rinse, rather, uh, so that we can clear the beans of their stabilizing liquid, essentially, in the can. Uh, But to know that it acts and reacts like the protein of egg whites is fascinating. Yeah, it's so fun to play around with, too. I mean, it it makes a great mayonnaise. It's just a really fun ingredient to play with. Okay, so you're using it as the base when you make a mayonnaise in in the food processor? Yes. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Oh, and then I just saw it on uh, corn... Oh, like you would in Mexican style with crumbled cotija or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So smart. Lindsay, if you'd please pause there. We'll take a quick break more with Lindsay Jean Hard as we cook with scraps right after this.
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, putting those seeds and stems and tops and rinds to good use, transforming scraps into culinary treasure. The author of Cooking with Scraps, Lindsay Jean Hard, is here. How about Estrada? It is, will you say any season is the perfect season for Strata? I think Strata for uh, fall, winter, cold weather brunch, right? I mean, it's hearty and rustic and uh, there's something beautiful about the bread and the eggs and the combination of all of it together, like a rustic kind of quiche per se. Um, but make a strata for us, if you would, using scraps. Well, I think the beautiful thing about stra- strata is that you can make it with whatever you have in the fridge. Yes. So you can make it with, if you have some carrot top pesto laying around, you can add that in. Whatever little odds and ends of vegetables you have, you can cook those and add those in. You know, you can grate all the little extra bits of cheese. Mm. It's just a great way to make leftovers seem more special than they are. And do you put a great big strata on the table in the, the skillet and then just go at it? It's like breakfast spoon bread to me. Yes. Yes, yes. absolutely. So good. Just so good. Um, okay. I didn't know that you could use banana peels to <laughs> to make just about anything. I Yeah, I think that's going to be the most surprising recipe in the book for folks is that you can eat banana peels. And once you've cooked them to soften them up a little bit and then blended them into a puree, um, I turn them into a cake in the book, but you could also use them to make a banana peel bread. I mean, it's just like using any other food fruit puree or applesauce in baking. Okay, so teach us how, please. So I cut up the banana peels and then I simmer them in a little bit of water just to get them soft. And it's better if you're using the banana peels that are really ripe, like the ones that have a lot of the brown spots on them. Okay. Um, and then I I transfer those peel pieces and a little bit of their cooking water um, and then puree them with an immersion blender, but a mini food processor would do the same thing too. And then you're making a cake just as you normally would, but you're adding in that blended banana peel mixture to it and it gives it this light, like bouncy texture. It's great. That's really fascinating to me. So they puree soft, like mushy smooth, like banana puree would be? Yeah, yeah. And you have, I would imagine, a really pungent banana flavor. And talk about a fiber boost. <laughs> That's true, too. Right? Yeah. So many yeah, benefits here. Still, yeah. It's not an extremely strong banana flavor, but it does come, the banana flavor does come through. I think that's fabulous. Um, okay. I would like to make mushroom stem compound butter, Lindsay Jean. <laughs> Yeah, mushroom stems are another one of those things that we get rid of and really don't need to. They can just be cooked up um, in most cases, mm-hmm. like the rest of the mushroom top. Um, Makes me think so duck cell, like, you know, we were taught in the traditional French fashion of uh, finely, finely chopped mushrooms into a duck cell uh, that becomes a filling or a sauce or and otherwise and the stems have the same flavor as the top so why not use them up right absolutely yeah so you're just chopping them super finely and um, lightly cooking them with some butter and shallots and you know Mm. thyme or brandy if you're so inclined yes Um, and then you're mixing that in once it cools off you're mixing that in with 
um, the butter and letting it firm back up in the refrigerator and then breading it on toast. Yum. Okay. We're cooking with scraps. If you just tuned in, you're late. Lindsay Jean Hard is here. And Lindsay Jean, I use my cheese rinds to season. So I'll throw the end of the Parmesan rind into soup or a stew or tomato sauce. But I did not know that there were even more uses. Enlighten us, please. Yes. Well, that is a great use and one that I definitely recommend doing. I keep um, multiple zip-top bags going in my freezer at all times for all my different little yes. rinds and bits and pieces. Um, so they are great for flavoring soups or flavoring beans. But you can also mix them all together and chop them up and turn them into a cheese spread. So this is your cheese rind fromage fort. And it's like a cheese ball where you would blend or mix, you know, your leftover cheeses. I love to do that with a little leftover goat cheese and that extra piece of blue cheese. And, you know, what was left on the cheese board is always brilliant. But I never thought to use the rinds. Yeah, well, I mean... Yeah, unless it's covered with, unless it's wax and you don't want to be eating that. But in most cases, you absolutely can eat them. And, you know, you can make it thick so it can be like a cheese ball. Or you can add in a little bit more butter and cream cheese to make it smoother and easier for spreading. Mm, and so really smart. make it your own with whatever cheeses you're adding in. Really smart. You are going to culinary heaven. You know that, right? Like there's a special place for you, for people oh. that used it all up. I really I think it's genius. Before I let you go, um, if we could celebrate the holidays by savoring pumpkin guts, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> it is a perfect one for this time of year. Yes. Um, I, I think a lot of us are really good about saving the seeds and roasting those, but we're not always saving the, the stringy guts, but those are perfectly edible too. Um, so it's not all that different from the banana peels if you lightly cook um, their stringy insides and then blend that, that can be used, um, again, similarly to a fruit puree. So I'm using them um, to give moisture to scones Hmm. in the book. Yeah, butterscotch pumpkin scones, which sound delectable. And I love that you're using up the guts because we've always loved the seeds, but you take those to a new level too. So I love an everything bagel, preferably spread, well, scooped out, well-toasted, preferably spread with uh, copious amounts of cream cheese and sliced tomato. But the everything bagel roasted pumpkin seeds, that's just fun. It's just one of my favorite flavor combinations. Love it. Absolutely love it. And then um, last but not least, salts. If you really want to dig deep and get to the bottom of your scraps, you infuse salt with flavor of every kind. Leave us uh, with your best tips, please. Um, This was one of my, the first ones that I shared on Food 52 that I was so excited about. I read Chef Gabrielle Hamilton's cookbook, Prune, Mm -hmm. and she turns tomato skins into a tomato powder. Yes. And I loved that. And I think, you know, tomato powder is a super fun thing to be using in, in a restaurant, but you wouldn't always be using that at home. Um, but it's really easy to go from tomato skin powder to tomato skin salt. And you're drying these um, skins out in the oven after you've, you know, canned your tomatoes or made tomato sauce, whatever, and, you know, drying them with the salt and then blending it together so it smooths out and you still get that tomato flavor and a lovely pink color. And you can do this with all sorts of scraps, not just tomato skins. You can have all sorts of fun, scrappy salts. 
Hmm. Okay, so with what other scraps can we can we make uh, seasoned salts? What can we utilize? You could do the same thing with cucumber peels or with celery leaves. Oh, a Bloody Mary on the brain. Yes. Yes. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, you could do it with some mushroom stems. You can do it with citrus zest. Hmm. Um, Super smart. We did one with... Uh, bell pepper skins similar to the tomato skins i mean the sky is the limit whatever you want to play with the sky is the limit Um, i really commend you kudos to you they are ingenious ideas and they're high level ingenious ideas in all the recipes in the book are dishes i want to eat and so congratulations the book is i know a labor of love and one that is close to your heart and uh, thrilled for your first cookbook success to many more. To you, Lindsay Jean, of course. Thank you. Yes, a pleasure. From Carrot Greens, bright and fresh and packed with flavor. They make a zesty pesto, she says. Broccoli stems get olive oil poaching to top lemony ricotta toasts. It is pure food genius. All the while, critically reducing waste one dish at a time the book just released is available now it's called cooking with scraps on amazon worldwide and in fine bookstores everywhere and you can follow her uh, food at lindsey jean hard the book cooking with scraps turn your peels cores rinds and stems into delicious meals just so smart lindsey jean come back again soon please i'd love to have you Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, waste not, want not, and feed your soul. There is lots more gastronomic inspiration coming up in your radio. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, Feeding Your Soul. Okay, start packing because we're traveling today in search of the world's greatest trips. A National Geographic's international travel guide, Journeys of a Lifetime, revised and updated for its 10th anniversary, will take you there. George Stone, editor-in-chief of Traveler Magazine, is adding to your travel bucket list. And I'm glad to have you. Hi, George. Hi. Doing? <laughs> doing great, thank you. Since we're planning a getaway, or uh, many at that. Um, okay, out of the 500 celebrated, some of them lesser known destinations around the globe, can you share some of your favorite places t- to start out? 
Absolutely. Thank you. For sure. One of my all-time favorites is Kerala, in um, a state in uh, southwestern India. Hmm. And um, and one of the reasons I love Kerala, um, it's it's a languid-paced, um, slower-moving state. It's not... Um, uh, it's not a, a region within India that's frenzied and fr- frenetic. Um, but one of the reasons I love it is that um, that it has very unique cuisine. Um, and so Carolyn cuisine um, is uh, usually vegetarian cuisine, usually um, almost always using um, coconut oil instead of butter or ghee. Mm. Um, and it, the variety of flavors, the, the variety of, of sort of... Um, experiences in Kerala, which is a much more agricultural state and also a wetlands state with lots of um, waterways um, that are called backwaters that you can ply in a little canoe. It's just a, a beautiful and remarkable place to go. How fabulous. And so off the beaten path. I love that the book covers places that I've not heard of. I find it uh, very aspirational to make a bucket list of those places that make for really good, as I say, dinner party conversation, right? Because, you know, who's been to Kerala? And I love that you're food-centric. So share a couple of other places, uh, food-fabulous, you know, or tour-fabulous as well. Yeah, you know, food is great. I mean, food is a common denominator. You know this. You you live food. Oh, Um, we'll we'll travel for food, George. I will travel for food. Yes. Um, stomach first. And increasingly, I am traveling literally stomach first. But, um, <laughs> you know, food brings people together. And it also um, it also reveals so much about a place, um, the ingredients um, to the, uh, the culture, the mm. economy of a place can mm-hmm. all revolve around the food, um, the sense of flavor and also then. Um, sometimes, most importantly, the sense of hospitality and sharing that yes. food um, presents an opportunity for. Yes. So, um, so because of that, I really like you know normal experiences, common experiences, really of food um, can be street food. Um, mm. You know, we have within the book um, a, a food tour. Um, on foot uh, in Seoul, in Korea, in South Korea. Oh yes. Um, which is you know. So varied, so pungent, so um, flavorful. Um, I uh, used to live in Singapore, and Singapore is celebrated for you know as being food obsessed. And if you want to talk to a Singaporean, all you got to do is say, "Well, what did you have for lunch?" And <gasps> you're going to hear everything. And it's going to be. And one of the neat things about Singapore and lots of places in the world, these. Crazy flavors, wonderful dishes that are regionally evocative and tell you something about, you know, the region or the world aren't expensive. They can be $2 and $3 dishes. Uh, so if, you know, food is, um, is a reason to travel, and then it's also a pathway toward understanding yes. um, mm. regions and the world. Isn't that true? You, you touch on a couple of things that, uh, that I very much agree with and believe in. One, there is a, an incredible sense of taste, literally, to eating street food to learn the food culture when you travel. And as long as you do it safely, I think it's an extraordinary way to get to know the people and the culture. And the other thing you mentioned is asking someone what they had for lunch. When you travel, do you find that people are more than willing to share their favorite hotspot, that to talk to the locals is the best way to search out 
uh, the best food, the best museums, the best places, because I love to engage in conversation like that. I have gotten the most extraordinary suggestions from someone sitting at the table next to us or, uh, you know, in Italy, sipping an espresso. You ask an Italian where to go to for gelato, you get the right answer. That's exactly right. And um, food brings the world together. And um, and it's, a, it's you know, it's, you're looking for a common area and also a safe topic to talk about, that is food. Markets also bring people together. And often, uh, for travelers, um, mm. they bring together English speakers. Yes, so, um, you know, often people, mm. yeah, in markets will speak English so you actually can have a conversation. It's a very normal and appropriate conversation to go to a market, talk to a vendor, ask, well, okay, I see that you're selling eggplants here, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, where, where would I eat this? Where, what's your favorite? And, Sometimes markets even have market lunches. That's one of the joys. I love the fascination of travel and the fact that you have armed us with all of these bucket list places. Uh, Truly, truly fabulous. Uh, For the love of travel, for the friend that's an adventure seeker, this is the book to have. It is a gorgeous coffee table book full of extraordinary photos that will set you on your next journey and plan the ultimate travel bucket list. It is National Geographic's Journeys of a Lifetime, second edition, and it's available now. George, I thank you for your insight, and I hope to eat gelato with you in Italy one day. Anytime. Let's do it, Jamie. And so that brings us to the end of another great hour of radio. I hope that I satiated your appetite and that you'll tune in every weekend and allow me to feed your soul. One more last bite for this hour. If you're feeling fancy, well, then I say make a galette. It sounds extravagant, right? It's practically the easiest baked dessert there is, and it's rustic and beautiful, and you really do look like a culinary hero. Now, my version uses either homemade or store-bought pie crust dough, or you could use puff pastry, as I talked about at the beginning of the hour, the beauty of a box of puff pastry. And then I take winter season pears tossed in rich caramel sauce and I bake it. That's about it. I will post the recipe for my three ingredient caramel pear galette on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram today at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I'll meet you here next weekend when there is lots more fabulous food guaranteed in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.